0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 197, The Beginning of the End, or The End of the Beginning. Now, it's just a few days since I've recorded the last episode, so there are no new patrons on Patreon, but as always, if you can support, even a dollar an episode makes a difference, and you get, even at that level, some cool kind of Patreon benefits, so check it out in the link in the description of the episode. And with that, let's get into it. Last time, we picked up in late January 1913, as Romania was ramping up the pressure on Bulgaria to give up southern Dobruja. The Great Powers also decided to support an independent Albanian state. As a result, when the fortresses of Janina, Adrianople, and Scutari fell and a new armistice was agreed to, the Great Powers instigated a blockade of Montenegro to force it to give up newly captured Scutari. Now, negotiations are ongoing, both in St. Petersburg and London, over a final conclusion to the war and how much territory Bulgaria will be forced to give to Bucharest but tensions are rising between Bulgaria and all of its erstwhile allies as attempts to negotiate final territories and demarcation lines and such have all failed. It's now mid-April 1913, and essentially the last remaining battlefield of the First Balkan War is the negotiating table. Russia is obviously one of the main players, and On the 19th of April, Metropolitan Neophyt of Skopje writes a letter to Russian Tsar Nicholas II asking for his diocese, in Macedonia obviously, to be transferred to Bulgaria. Now we've seen the population of Macedonia express a Bulgarian national identity, but it's already clear that none of the great powers really care about the actual identities of the populations of basically any of the territories that are being discussed at this moment in history whether we're talking about Bulgarians in Macedonia and southern Dobruja or Turks in Thrace. The negotiations are a pure expression of might makes right, and the value or importance of territory is basically the only thing that's deciding who gets it, not who lives there or, god forbid, what those people actually think. And to be fair, this is usually going against Bulgaria, but does apply to Bulgaria as well, as a lot of the territories it's now trying to annex that it just conquered in Thrace. A lot of it, I mean, there's Bulgarians living there, but very small numbers. So this isn't just a pure everyone else, it doesn't apply to Bulgaria. This kind of thinking applies to everyone. Speaking of which, on the 26th, the negotiations between Bulgaria and Romania in St. Petersburg concluded and Bulgaria reluctantly signed the Petersburg Protocol. It grants Romania the city of Silistra and about three kilometers of territory surrounding it. Hall writes how, quote, Naturally, this decision antagonized both sides. The Romanians sought further concessions from Bulgaria in southern Dobruja. At the same time, the loss of this ethnically Bulgarian town outraged the Sofia government the duplicitous Russian policy also made the Bulgarians who relied on Russia to mediate their growing dispute with Serbia uncertain about the reliability of the power they depended upon to protect their interests, end quote. And unfortunately, they were very right to be so worried. Elsewhere, Serbia and Greece came to an agreement about their mutual border and the potential for war against Bulgaria. Belgrade and Athens are now fully aligned on the possibility of mutual actions against Bulgaria should it come to that. They were also both speaking to the Romanians about aiding in that potential war. But Bucharest was hesitant to commit to anything. Greece and Serbia were also in contact with the Ottomans about potentially collaborating against Bulgaria, even though a formal treaty ending the war has yet to be signed, which it's an interesting historical anomaly. I don't, I don't think there's a lot of cases where you have countries that are technically still at war with each other, discussing, kind of acting against a country that is ostensibly legally the ally of some of those countries. It's just a weird situation. But like the Romanians, the Ottomans were interested but hesitant to commit to anything concrete. Even the Montenegrins by this point were basically committed to help against Bulgaria because they owed Serbia for its help against Skutari and still hoped to get more concessions from Belgrade because, you'll remember, the Serbs managed to take, take a lot of the territory that the Montenegrins wanted. Already even a month before this point, Tsar Ferdinand had warned Crown of Prince Boris that he believed that the Greeks and Serbs had by this point already formed an alliance and that war against them was imminent. In hindsight, it seems that even Ferdinand kind of underestimated just how bad the situation had already gotten. Stephen Constant notes how, quote, Ferdinand and the Bulgarians were increasingly playing a lone hand, not only in the Balkans, but in the wider context of Europe. While Austria was now trying to win over Bulgaria, Austria's senior partner, Germany, was becoming distinctly anti-Bulgarian, The change in attitude was entirely due to Kaiser Wilhelm. His enthusiasm about Bulgaria's early victories and his new admiration of Ferdinand did not last long. In a characteristic change of face, he recovered his old antipathy towards the Bulgarian Tsar. He became an ardent and active supporter of the Greek and Romanian claims on Bulgaria, not least due to family reasons. The Romanian royal family were Hohenzollerns, and the new king of Greece, Constantine, was married to wilhelm's sister sophia end quote. so yeah things are not looking for bulgaria looking good for bulgaria either in the balkans or on the wider european political stage and to make matters worse, at the wedding of Kaiser Wilhelm's daughter in Berlin, the Kaiser managed to convince the rulers of Russia and Britain that Bulgaria was at fault for the clashes that were happening in Greece, getting the Tsar of Russia to send an angry telegram to Ferdinand while merely building up sort of suspicion and antipathy against the Bulgarians in the British King George. In Macedonia, by early May, Mass violence against Bulgarians was already underway by both Greek and Serbian forces, violence described by some as genocide. Attempts were made to Serbicize and Grecize the population, with Bulgarian schools being closed and used to house the occupying armies. Priests were forbidden from preaching in Bulgarian, and members of pro-Bulgarian organizations were persecuted across the board. By this point, it's already crystal clear that Greece, and Serbia view Bulgarian identities in the territories they covet as a direct threat, which should be basically attacked. This is getting into the future, for, but for Greece, ultimately, for a long time, any Slavic identity of any kind will basically be seen as a sort of implicit attack against the state, leading to rigorous campaigns to force Slavs living in Greece to not speak their language and to sort of deny their identity in this sense but you know, that's something I'll be talking about more in much later episodes. And in general, I'll, I'll cover this more in detail over time, but for so many people living in Macedonia, liberation from the Ottomans now brought a new kind of occupier, intent on forcing them to change or deny their identities. Regardless of the situation of Bulgarians in Macedonia, the great powers are already beginning to side with Serbia as the Russian foreign minister, sent three telegrams to Prime Minister Gesholt in the span of a week, advising him to surrender the strip of Macedonia, which Bulgaria had been promised in its treaty with Serbia. So Russia's already telling, telling Bulgaria, just give up your, your, your ambitions in Macedonia, accept whatever the Serbs want, just sort of give in to them. So while Bulgaria had hoped that Russia would take its side, in the discussions over how much of northern Macedonia, including Skopje, would go to Bulgaria. Instead, Russia was now telling Bulgaria to give up absolutely all of its basically territory in Macedonia minus Pirin Macedonia. So Pirin Macedonia based around Kornachemaya, which is now Blagovgrad, that's the only bit of Macedonia that no one really disputed going to Bulgaria and you know, spoiler alert if you have a map, but it's the only bit of Macedonia that Bulgaria still controls today. Basically, that territory had been liberated by, by Bulgarian troops, and it it was kind of too far away for Serbia to be of much interest, and it didn't really make sense for Greece to want it. It would have created like an awkward bulge. It's, it's, it just didn't have any interest for Greece or Serbia, and so that was the only bit that, you know, no one really disputed Bulgaria getting to take. Hall rightly points out that this was yet another case in which Russia was letting Bulgaria down, writing, quote, At this point, the Russian Foreign Office might well have intervened to protect its interests in the Balkans. The foreign minister should have taken direct steps to resolve the Bulgarian-Serbian dispute. In particular, he should have invoked the arbitration clause of the March 1912 treaty and indicated that, that the Russian Tsar was prepared to assume his obligations under the treaty. This could have kept the dispute within the bounds of Russian control, or at least Russian influence. Instead, the Russian Foreign Office attempted to ignore the looming collapse of the Balkan League." Hall later simply states that "...many Bulgarians still clung to their special relationship with Russia." they could not believe that Russia would liberate the country from the Ottomans only to turn over one-third to Serbia, end quote. Though Stephen Constant is a little more understanding of this, the realities of the situation, noting that, quote, the failure of Ferdinand and his advisors to gauge the extent to which St. Petersburg was now beginning to turn against Bulgaria is excusable, since the Russians themselves were unsure of their own attitude to the situation in the Balkans end quote. He goes on to point out that as we've seen time and time again in this podcast, much of Russia's policy in the Balkans was coming from the personal attitudes of its diplomats in the various capitals and not from a kind of centralized policy from the Russian foreign ministry. So in essence, you you might have the ambassador in Bucharest versus the ambassador in Belgrade versus the ambassador in Athens, Sofia. a lot of them had their own ideas about how Russia should fit into all of this, and sometimes those ideas were contradictory, meaning it was a lot easier for, well, basically some countries in the Balkans to play off of that and take advantage, and for others like Bulgaria to kind of misunderstand the situation, because, you know, Bulgaria might be listening to one ambassador and hearing their perspective and assuming that that ambassador represents the overall views of the Russian foreign ministry, when that's sadly not the case. Overall, though, it's clear Bulgaria is losing the diplomatic war. Stathelova notes that, quote, The Bulgarian voice was drowned out by the roar of the Allies, who held back nothing in their battle against the Prussia of the Balkans. Belgrade and Athens hurled insinuations, printed lies, and engaged in behind-the-scenes manipulations and petty Balkan tricks. They won ground, for they had the advantage of being several while Bulgaria was alone. The Entente preferred to maintain influence over several Balkan states, so it chose to indulge Serbia, Greece, and Romania rather than Bulgaria, from which all others were seeking territory. At this crucial moment, Bulgarian diplomacy seriously underestimated the value of international propaganda. The Serbian and Greek regimes were bribing important newspapers in Paris, London, and elsewhere to defend their policies, but the Bulgarians did not undertake equally powerful measures to win European public sympathy. End quote. So you can see, I mean, Bulgaria is in a bit of a, you know, bringing a knife to a gunfight kind of situation. They I keep saying this; they are really misunderstanding just how bad the situation is, and the extent to which their allies and the great powers are all sort of aligning against them. Bulgaria is so sort of acting as if it's in a much stronger position, and the situation is not all that dire. I mean, even you know, the even people like Ferdinand who believe that war with Serbia and Greece is imminent don't seem as afraid. Think that Bulgaria can win that war. But the reality is that, you know, with the Ottomans and Romanians possibly getting involved, Bulgaria is sort of leaning and pushing and gently moving towards this potential conflict that it doesn't seem likely that they can win. So overall, by this point, Serbia and Greece are doing everything they can to win the diplomatic game, and, and that includes delaying a final peace deal with the Ottomans as long as possible because, well, they know that time is on their side. The longer Bulgaria has to wait for that peace deal to be signed, the worse things get. They can see that while their efforts to build greater support, again, in the Balkans and in Europe as a whole is being being very successful, Bulgaria's efforts are not. And so they think if they have more time, they will only get stronger. Plus, As long as the war with the Ottomans isn't formally over, the Bulgarians can't move all their forces at the Ottoman border to the Greek and Serbian borders to potentially fight that war. Now, the Serbs at this point, to continue the kind of propaganda efforts, even published the text of the Balkan League treaty between Bulgaria and Serbia. But of course, it conveniently leaves out the secret annex, which basically stated how Macedonia was to be be divided. So Serbia, you know, basically, I mean, lies, it's a lie of omission, but lies to the world about the nature of their treaty with Bulgaria in order to build more public sympathy and to sort of make Bulgaria's demands seem unreasonable because, you know, the wider public is not aware of promises that were made. So, This obviously annoys a lot of Bulgarian diplomats and government officials because they they don't really feel like there's much they can do to counter it. Now, things escalate even further when on May 9th and 10th, another round of fighting between Bulgarian and Greek soldiers breaks out near the village of Dramatitsa, which is between Kavala and Serres in what's now northern Greece. Now, this isn't too far from where Bulgarians and Greeks were fighting before, at the mouth of the Struma, about two months prior. And both sides basically accused each other of trying to maneuver troops to control more territory, but regardless of whose precise accounts of, ac- accounts of the events are more accurate, overall, these skirmishes resulted in nearly 900 casualties on all sides and further strained relations between Sofia and Athens. Now, this came in the context of Ivan Gershov trying desperately to prevent an outbreak of war between Bulgaria and its allies. As a result, he ordered General Savov to cease all fighting with the Greeks, but the incident still provided Greece with a pretext to label Bulgaria as the aggressor and continue building wider diplomatic support for a war against Bulgaria. But many within the Bulgarian National Assembly still opposed any concessions, which, led Geshov to eventually state, quote, not all our national dreams and aspirations can be realized by one generation, and we mustn't wipe out the present generation trying, end quote. So you can imagine, I mean, Geshov is one of those people that seems to see that a war between Bulgaria and its allies would be disastrous, and he's trying to stop it. But, you know, it's a, it's a pattern we've seen time and time again. If you are in Bulgaria in this era trying to make concessions trying to sort of find the least bad outcome, there are hardliners all throughout Bulgarian politics and Bulgarian society, you know, the internal Macedonian revolutionary organizations, all these kinds of groups that are dead set against any sort of compromise, against any concessions. And so Bulgarian politicians time and time again, like Prime Minister Geshev here, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Either they give up those concessions and you know risk the intense ire and quite possibly violence of their own populations or they refuse and risk a disastrous war so you can understand how ivan Geshov and many of his diplomats and you know members of the government are probably feeling at this point now the day after that fighting between greece and bulgaria ended the Greek and Serbian ambassadors in Sofia protested to Prime Minister Geshov over Bulgaria's actions. The day afterwards, the Serbian cabinet sent a note to the Bulgarian government stating that Serbia, Montenegro, and Greece have established a joint government in Macedonia. So yeah, the the, the diplomatic war is escalating, and it's now clear that Bulgaria is being quite explicitly excluded from Macedonia. So overall, it's clear to the Bulgarians that the Serbs and Greeks are preparing to fight. Tsar Ferdinand was so worried about the prospect of their armies reaching Sofia that by this point he had already evacuated many works of art, his personal archives, and the entire foreign ministry from the Bulgarian capital. Then, finally, on May the 18th, again, just noting all the dates I'm using these days are in the old calendar, so they'll be slightly different from dates you see in some locations, May 18th, the Treaty of London was signed, formally ending the First Balkan War. Fighting had been happening on and off for nearly eight months. In this treaty, the new Bulgarian-Ottoman border was drawn in a straight line from Enos on the Aegean to Medea on the Black Sea. This meant that while Bulgaria did obtain Adrianople, it would not get any territory on the Sea of Marmara or the Gallipoli Peninsula, and its border would be a little bit further back from Constantinople than its armies currently were, so further back than the Chitalja line. Now, frankly, this seems inevitable because none of the great powers were interested in Bulgaria gaining territory that would give it even partial control over the Dardanelles Straits, or a border that would threaten the Ottoman capital even more, although frankly, this border definitely does threaten the Ottoman capital. So, Overall, this meant that the Ottomans were left without their powerful fortresses, though they didn't work very well, at Lozengrad and Adrianople, and that in any future war with Bulgaria, the only defensive line between the Bulgarian border and Constantinople would be, again, the chitalja line. Now, besides the bit of Thrace they retained, the only other bit of Ottoman territory in Europe that remained at this point was Albania that was kind of a technicality because the great powers were still working out the border of the independent Albanian state. So there, you know, that, that territory wasn't going to remain Ottoman. Crete was given over to Greece, which nobody really doubted that was going to happen while the great powers themselves will basically decide to entrust themselves with a final decision over the status of the Aegean islands and the territory around Thessaloniki. And, you know, spoiler alert, Eventually, all the islands except the two that are kind of closest to the entrance to the Dardanelles and are needed to protect them, all the other ones are given to Greece. Lastly, an international commission was set up to determine financial issues, mostly around how much of the Ottoman debt the various countries that were taking Ottoman territory should acquire. We've seen this before when Bulgaria became independent, the Ottomans have a whole lot of debt, and so whenever anyone takes some of the Ottoman population, some of the Ottoman territories, the great powers always insist that they take a proportional amount of the Ottoman debt. Now, Stethellova calls this treaty the first Bulgarian diplomatic success of the war, mostly because finally concluding the war with the Ottomans meant that, as I mentioned, they could move their forces, manning that frontier, over to face the Serbs and the Greeks. But you know we'll see how much of a win this really was so yes the war is formally over but as it should be clear there was a tremendous amount left to be decided essentially the only border that's kind of really clarified is the one between bulgaria and the ottomans and eventually you know the aegean border between greece and the ottomans the number of bulgarians dead in the conflict was about 9000 and That was more than the dead of Serbia and Greece combined. Though all the casualties, and if you don't know, casualties just means a combination of dead and wounded. So the casualties of all the Balkan allies combined was roughly 115,000, still less than half the casualties suffered by the Ottomans, which is around 270,000. So in total, nearly 400,000 men had been killed, wounded, or missing on all sides. Now, of course, these are just estimates, but the takeaways are, you know, the Ottomans suffered disproportionately, but within those fighting the Ottomans, the Bulgarians suffered by far the greatest losses and, you know, had the largest army, all the stuff we talked about at the beginning of the coverage of this war. The first Balkan war saw new uses of technology with aircraft being used for the second time in a war. And in several roles, it was the first time aircraft had ever been used, for example, in attacking ships. It saw the first-ever attacks with torpedoes, and the wide use of technology like machine guns, trenches, and barbed wire that would very soon define the First World War. But also, like that war, this conflict saw widespread human rights abuses, with Misha Glenny noting how, quote, The First Balkan War was characterized by exceptional brutality and an utter disregard for the civilian populations whose misfortune it was to inhabit the combat areas, end quote. For example, a telegram sent to Prime Minister Geshev from what's now the town of Drama in Greece noted that the Vemero, quote, "...was sent to Pomak villages located north and northwest of Drama with a group of 15 people to Christianize the Pomaks." End quote. So, cases like this saw irregular soldiers basically pressuring or just using violence, to forcibly convert pomaks who if you've if you've forgotten are sort of ethnic bulgarians who speak bulgarian but who are muslims by religion a letter sent by a bulgarian man from a village in the rudopi mountains near smolyan written to his brother mentioned how quote, "yesterday evening they pulled down the minaret of the mosque in vlachovo they warned them to convert otherwise they will be tortured" and So, throughout the newly captured regions, violence and threats of violence are being used to force Muslim Pomaks to convert to Christianity. Now, in a tragic hint of events that would come decades later, in these cases, even the past was altered, as people's birth certificates were changed to indicate that they had been born to Orthodox parents, and death certificates were altered to change the religion of people long-departed. A letter sent by a man from Pasarczyk to Prime Minister Geshov framed the perspective of many who led these efforts, writing, quote, we have not led a war of conquest, but a war for independence, a crusade war, a war of the cross, the creator of culture and civilization. This is why one of our future ideals must be the imposition of Christianity on all our future subjects, end quote. So, not everyone, obviously, on, on all sides has this kind of perspective, but that gives you a glimpse into how some viewed this war. So, scenes like this were repeated elsewhere throughout the Balkan states, the various Balkan allies. Overall, estimates put, for example, the number of Albanians killed in Kosovo during the war at around 20 to 25,000. Greeks, Serbs, and Montenegrins enacted violence against civilians because of their Muslim religion because of their Albanian, Turkish, or Bulgarian ethnic identities. And in the Ottoman Empire, mass persecution of Greeks began, as these populations were now seen as national security threats, whose presence alone could justify more Greek territorial expansion in the future. Now, I could frankly spend an entire episode just going into the gruesome details of all these human rights abuses during the First Balkan War, but suffice to say, Gross human rights abuses were carried out by all sides in this war. While some civilian and military leaders clearly wished to avoid such brutalities, it's clear that many others were eager to enact revenge or simply do their part by creating ethnically or religiously homogeneous territories that they believed would make their own states more powerful. The greatest tragedy is one we know that whether you're looking at the experiences of Bulgarians in Macedonia or Muslims pretty much anywhere in the Balkans, the tragedies of the 20th century were just beginning. But what about the diplomatic effects of the Treaty of London and the overall end of the First Balkan War? Well, Henry Kissinger in his book, Diplomacy, notes that the London Conference of 1913 was essentially the last time the international system was able to sort of tap the brakes on a conflict prior to the outbreak of World War I. Of course, the irony is that the powers, yeah, they did sort of end the First Balkan War, but they very much laid the foundations for decades of future bloodshed, so even that, I think, deserves an asterisk. But beyond that, nearly every single power emerged from this conflict with frustrations from the winners to the losers to those who were on the sidelines. The result, Kissinger writes, was that, quote, "'Afterwards, each great power "'was suddenly seized by panic, "'that a conciliatory stance "'would make it appear weak and unreliable "'and cause its partners to leave it "'in facing a hostile coalition all alone. "'Countries began to assume levels of risk "'unwarranted by their historic national interests "'or by any rational long-term strategic objective.'" End quote. This is interesting because yes, the Balkan Wars are usually portrayed as the precursor to World War One. I. I mean, one of the books I'm using, and this is literally called "Precursor to the First World War." But Kissinger's point shows how, besides simply showing what the actual fighting would look like, the First Balkan War pushed all the great powers into a mindset where they felt compelled to take ever greater risks and avoid ever backing down, which. Anyone familiar with uh, how things are leading up to the First World War, you can see how this is really laying the groundwork. Now, the day after the treaty was signed was a very busy one. For one, after rejecting Russian advice to surrender the disputed Macedonian territories to Serbia and feeling like his efforts to stave off another war had basically inevitably failed, Ivan Geshov resigned as prime minister. Stephen Constant put it that, quote, he felt unable to fulfill his policy of keeping the Balkan alliance intact and believed war inevitable, end quote. Another motivator behind the resignation was his growing dispute with Ferdinand, who felt Geshov too willing to accept external pressure to give up territory in order to avoid war. Again, I talked about these kind of internal challenges within the Bulgarian government and how you had all these factions and things, and this is one of those. Now, Geshov remained in the government technically, and just became Speaker of the National Assembly, and was replaced as Prime Minister by Stoyan Danev, who you may remember had been Prime Minister several times between 1901 and 1903. He had also led the Bulgarian delegation that just signed the London Peace Treaty, so he was an experienced diplomatic leader and someone who was in a position to kind of take responsibilities for the treaties that he had just been a part of negotiating. Policy-wise, Danoff was determined to force Serbia to stick to the original agreement they had made before the war and not to accept the changes Belgrade was now insisting upon. Danoff was also a Russophile, but even he was worried about Russia's unclear policy at this point. Elsewhere, the same day, saw Bulgarian troops withdraw to their new border with the Ottomans, But the Bulgarian government also stated that the territory between the new border and the Chitalja line should remain under Bulgarian control until that new border is sort of officially demarcated. Lastly, and perhaps the worst news of the day, Serbia and Greece signed the Treaty of Salonika, beginning a formal alliance that everyone knew was aimed squarely at Bulgaria. Though it also bound Greece to aid Serbia in case of an Austrian attack, so that might come up later. Now, while Turkey and Romania, again, weren't formally in this alliance, by now it was clear that both stood ready to take advantage the moment an opportunity presented itself. And that's where we'll conclude this episode. It's now late May, and the First Balkan War has finally concluded, but the fighting of the Second Balkan War has in many ways already begun. Bulgaria is surrounded by hostile powers who each desire to take territory from it, And even aside from the prospect of more full-scale war, ethnic and religious violence is raging throughout the Balkans. Next time, we'll see uprisings in newly conquered territories, mutinies in armies, and the outbreak of the Second Balkan War. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, check out bghistorypodcast.com, For more information about everything in here, especially you can get a list of my sources and a list of all the major events, major characters, images, maps, all that stuff in the description of this episode. So check that out.